0: You're listening to Thaisi Women Diaspora, episode two.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thaisi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. My guest today is one of my friends from the UN World Food Program, Noor Shams. Welcome, Noor. It's great to have you on the show. We saw each other a couple months ago. How have you been?
2: Oh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you
1: for having me on the show, Mala. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for being here. Um, So as I mentioned before, you and I know each other from our time at the United Nations World Food Program in New York. Though before you came to New York, you had grown up in a bunch of different countries. Could you start by telling us a bit about your childhood and the places you grew up?
2: Sure. Um, So I'm from Bangladesh. That's where I was born. And I lived there until I was about five years old. And that's when my family started moving. So while I was growing up, I lived in the United Arab Emirates. I lived in South Korea, in Singapore, in Russia, I lived a couple of years in Los Angeles and then a couple of years back and forth in Bangladesh when I was in my early teens and as an, early, you know, young adult and then finally moved to New York where I now live for about 11 years.
1: Nice, so New York is home?
2: Yeah, so New York is uh home in a way, but Bangladesh is still home because that's where my family is and uh, you know, I'm still a citizen of Bangladesh, but you know, on the other hand, New York is where I've spent the longest time in my life so far.
1: So, can you tell me what was it like being Bangladeshi, South Asian? Like, how did that identity kind of play into your childhood and all of these different places that you grew up?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I never really thought about my identity actively growing up, but now that I think about it, there weren't a lot of South Asians living in some of the places where I grew up, like South Korea and in Russia, and I feel like it always drew out my identity a lot more during those times. I definitely explored, you know, more of my culture when I didn't have access to a lot of it. But in other places, you know, I was always surrounded by Bangladeshis and that also kind of helped me identify with my culture throughout. So in, in ways, I mean, I think about it, I don't know if I would have been any different in my personality and how I identify with my culture had I grown up in Bangladesh. I don't feel that I was disconnected from it entirely, even when you know, I lived in places where there weren't a lot of Bangladeshis around.
1: You know, one of the common themes that has emerged from these podcasts is that a lot of people look at their South Asian identity very Mm -hmm. much depending on where they are, which is obvious. But it's like if if you're in a country that has no South Asians generally, then that South Asian bit comes more salient. But then if you go to a country like in the States where there's a ton of South Asians, then you can kind of parse down and get to that national identity. Did you feel that way in different countries?
2: I did. I mean, you know, because I was so much younger at the time, I, I don't think it was something I was actively thinking about.
1: Can you take a step back maybe and just kind of walk me through your childhood?
2: Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I lived in the UA- You know, in the United Arab Emirates from when I was about five to nine years old. And then uh, this is all because my father was hosted with the Bangladesh Embassy in all of these places. He's a diplomat. Then we... Lived in South Korea for about four years from third grade to about middle of seventh grade. Then we were in Bangladesh for about a year, which was kind of disruptive, but also great because it really let me reconnect with my roots. And then we moved to Singapore for about a year and a half, which is also kind of a short move, very disruptive in ways, but it was great in other ways. Then I did my undergrad in Moscow. Um, I skipped a lot of high school (laughs) and then eventually moved to LA and then back to Bangladesh for a year when I worked at Grameen and then to New York.
1: Wow. Okay. Nice. And do you have any siblings?
2: I do. Yeah. I have two younger brothers.
1: Okay. And then do you feel like they had a similar experience or have you guys been able to talk about that?
2: Yeah, so my younger brother, immediately younger than me, is five years younger. Mm-hmm. And the other one is quite a bit younger. He's 19 years younger than me. We're all from wow. This <laughs> Yeah, we're all from the same parents, but you know, obviously. <laughs> Last
1: one was a
0: surprise.
2: <laughs> Last one was a bit of a surprise, yeah, but you know, he often complains because he was born in Moscow and he didn't live in all of the places we did. And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, my life's been a little different from yours. And uh, my brother and I were like, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, now looking back, it was a cool experience, but it was tough, you know, always being uprooted. It takes a while to settle down, make new friends, adjust to new school systems. And just when you feel like you're starting to enjoy yourself and like your life, it's time to leave again.
1: Yeah. Do you ever talk to your parents about that? <laughs>
2: we did when we were younger now not anymore it's funny I often talk about it with my husband now because he's had a similar upbringing he's um his parents were Sri Lankan diplomats Mm -hmm. and we talk about it and you know like I mean we're kind of sympathetic to our parents as well because both steps of our my in-laws and my parents you know they come from very middle income families and for them to take this step you know become diplomats and move from one country to another was also a big thing. And I don't know if they were necessarily prepared for the journey that it was going to be. And I think they did their very best to, you know, settle us into new places and give us an experience that was going to be meaningful. But, you know, I I think for them, it was a great opportunity and they looked at it as that for their children as well. And it was, but I think, you know, a lot of the struggles of moving to a new country, adjusting all of that, I mean, they were also affected by that, right? so, and I think growing up, we didn't realize that as much.
1: Yeah, I, th- I don't think any kid does.
2: Back then, it was always just so, like, nostalgic for Bangladesh. Mom, why don't we just go back? <laughs> <laughs> um so, you know, I, I get it now. Um,
1: you, there's a term that you use for you and your husband, the kind of kids you were. What was it again?
2: <laughs> a diplomat.
1: <laughs> a diplomat.
2: <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> it's a commonly used term, um, I guess, describe kids of diplomats.
1: Do you feel like your experience as a Bangladeshi diplomat was similar to like American kids or Canadians maybe like embassies that are thought to have more power sometimes do have more power?
2: (laughs) I mean no as kids I don't think so because you know there are certain sets of privileges that all of the diplomatic missions enjoy wherever they are and you know as kids you really commingle with each other and you know it doesn't matter whether you're from the bulgarian mission or the u.s mission or the bangladesh mission you know it's like you all kind of have that shared understanding that oh we're part of this international community here and you know kind of isolated in some ways from the rest of a country but there's solidarity in that
1: you feel like the diplomat identity or you feel like diplomats have their kind of own identity within these countries
2: I so, I think so, and you know, um, I mean, there are a lot of people who call themselves, I guess, third culture kids. I don't really think I'm that. Um, you're
1: like seventh or eighth culture kid at this point,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but mostly I'm just Bangladeshi. You know. I feel like that identity
1: is pretty strong in me. Mm-hmm. So, you said that you had to transition quite a bit to different types of education systems. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah,
2: yeah so that was um, quite a challenge for both myself and my brother. So, you know, when we lived in Abu Dhabi, we went to an Indian school. It was very challenging, very competitive. But it was easy enough, you know, fitting in with everyone because there were a lot of other South Asians. So culturally, I felt like I was in a place where people understood me. Um, even though that point in my life I was just learning English and I couldn't really communicate very well with a lot of my peers initially, it, It was an easy place to really kind of get accustomed to life in the West, as we would call it then. And then when we moved to South Korea, we enrolled in an American school. Oh, it was an international school that was run by mostly Americans. And the educational system was, the academic system was very different. It just felt a lot easier in ways, um, not as competitive as the Indian school that we were in. In Abu Dhabi, which was actually, I think, under the Indian school board in some way. But it was a lot more of a fun learning experience um, at the school. And that was, I think, my first introduction to like kind of um, how US school systems operate. Then when we moved to Bangladesh after that for a year, it was really challenging because the last four years before I was in the US system, and then we moved to a British school in Bangladesh. And um, I was preparing for the O levels at that time, which is the 10th grade equivalent in the GCSE British system. And that was a tough year for me academically because I kind of missed a lot of the core concepts in a lot of classes where we were in seventh grade. In South Korea, in my school, we were just, you know, learning maybe basic algebra, but all of a sudden I was um, skipping over to more advanced mathematics and failing all of that and <laughs> physics. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it not well, way to
1: break the stereotype. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> yep, yep. Do um, not
1: cheat off of me.
2: <laughs> and, you know, everyone else in my school had been enrolled in that school since they were little kids. So I was coming into it very new. In Singapore, the school system was a bit similar to what I went to in Bangladesh. I went to a public school there, but um, they also do the O levels there. So that was similar. But the challenge there was because the academic calendar started at a different time, I sort of ended up catching maybe like a month of ninth grade after I had just finished eighth grade into my new school. And so I ended up having to skip an entire grade, really, and um, skip ahead to 10th grade, which then, again, ended up being challenging, but somehow made it through. And then in Russia, we moved there when I was about 16, and the challenge there was um, there weren't a lot of good schools where I could take classes in English. So, my parents talked me into enrolling into this US accredited university in Moscow, which is a very small college. So, you really, I skipped 11th and 12th grade at that point as well and just started college super early.
1: How old uh, were you when you started? I was 16.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't talk about this often. So, you know, just talking
1: about this. <laughs> like I'm bringing now. up all kinds of feelings. I'm sorry. I apologize.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, mentally not, you know, I, in my in my mind, I was like, oh, I have two years, I'm going to take the SATs, you know, I'm going to um, probably move to the U.S. That was always the plan for college, but it didn't happen, and I had a lot of frustrations about that because my parents really kind of talked me into signing up there, and they wanted me to stay at home at that age, which makes sense, but, you know, I've complained about that a lot to them. It was easy to get through college there. It wasn't the most challenging place. And it was interesting culturally being in Russia um, at the time. But if I had been given my options again, I probably wouldn't have made that decision to study there, even though it was a really cool experience overall. Mm, I just yeah. think I would have done things differently. I don't think I would have gone to <laughs> college at sixteen. People are like, "Oh, you must be really smart." I'm like, "No, no." <laughs> it was just kind of. I don't know. I feel like I felt like a sham.
1: And then eventually, you came to Columbia University for yeah. grad school. What was that like?
2: That was challenging um, because you know that was really my first proper introduction to higher education system in the U.S., and I was not prepared for it in many ways because I hadn't gone to school in the U.S., even though, you know, I was familiar with much of the curriculums and, I you know, kind of been mentally preparing to go to college in the U.S. when I was younger. But being in, you know, at a large university like Columbia, my program itself, uh, the International Development Program, I think my graduating class was 700. Um, so it was big and it was hard for me to navigate that, um, not having previously studied in the US. But overall, it was a really great experience. It felt very natural for me to be in that space. It was a very international program. In ways, it felt like the years I spent growing up in uh, some of the schools and you know, some of the diplomatic communities where you're constantly meeting people from every single part of the world. Um, that part was very interesting. Academically, it was challenging. But yeah, I graduated.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I can see it. I mean, I kinda had the opposite experience because I went to the new school for my masters mm-hmm. in international development and mm-hmm. I felt like the imposter. It was like I do not have a cool enough story to be here. You like do. I I, you know, I was an Indian yeah. from Virginia. I was like <laughs> that. I don't know. So many people had grown yeah. up in so many different countries and they spoke a bunch of different languages. I, I learned French on my own, but right. that was because I lived it for a year in France. It wasn't, you know, any interesting childhood story. So
2: no, I think that's what most of us did too—just waved out of the language requirement because we either spoke it at home or had, you know, some previous exposure to it.
1: So, what are some of the, um, I guess, the advantages and disadvantages you saw with the different types of education system growing up?
2: I think, you know, it taught me personally to just pick up quickly and make do with what I have and make the most of my resources. And, but, you know, the the positives I saw, I guess, with the, so the Indian academic system, I feel like I learned a lot those few years that I was there because there was really so much crammed into all of the subjects we had in school teachers were very on top of everything. But, you know, in terms of the discipline there, I feel I remember just being traumatized a lot. You know, it's one of those schools where you'd get, you know, hit with a ruler or something if you didn't have your homework done on time. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Learn to fear the education more than (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It was definitely that. I think I took to it fairly well because I was kind of a nerdy kid, but I remember my younger brother being really traumatized when we lived in Aptali and went to that Indian school. Um, like, he literally wouldn't want to go to school on most days. So yeah. going from that to an American school was kind of refreshing because everyone was so different. Like, the teachers were very friendly. Like, it, it, was, it just felt like an entirely different world. You know, the downside of that, some of those years, yeah, there were, I have a lot of great memories from school. And, you know, it was associated with a fun place. but. Afterwards, when we moved, that kind of set us back academically because we hadn't really learned as much as, you know, other kids were in different schools and different parts of the world. And that might be true, you know, of people who study in the U.S. and then move somewhere to Asia. It's a lot more rigorous.
1: Yeah, I've heard that South Asian schools, of course, the system is great for rote memorization. Yeah,
2: there was definitely a lot of focus on rote memorization. Back when I was little in in Abu Dhabi in Singapore especially, I did feel like there wasn't a focus on the creative things that I wanted to study. Like I, I didn't have access to literature classes, which is a big bummer for me. There wasn't really much of a focus on the arts. It was very science heavy. And that sort of bugged me a little bit. But it was also good. It's where, you know, it forced me to learn a lot more math. <laughs> <laughs>
1: math can be important yeah (laughs) (laughs) one of the things you mentioned was that when you were in Korea there was something called the TAF club can you tell me about that
2: (laughs) yeah Um, so in Singapore I was for about six months a part of this trim and fit club (laughs) really spells fat backwards I was uh, one kilogram overweight. <laughs> oh my God. I remember being so traumatized. Yeah,
1: totally. I mean, I was fat growing up. If they had sorted me into a a taff fat club, <laughs> even worse. I don't even know.
2: Yeah. Um, so they would actually make us meet after school, I think once or twice a week, go running, <laughs> all, all these different activities. Uh, but it was good. You know, I think about it. I'm like, I think it's, good to put to some extent kids through that sort of thing just yeah like,
1: it's good to expose kids to exercise but to do yeah. it hopefully in a positive <laughs> way not in like a body shaming
2: <laughs> well so I don't think they I, I to be honest I don't know if it was really meant to spell fat backwards <laughs> that might have been a total oversight on their part but all the kids were like oh yeah you're in the fat club <laughs> but, um, but it's so this trim and fit program is actually I think a national program in all of the Singaporean public schools, so all of the schools did it, it wasn't just mine, and uh, I was quite surprised to hear about that and learn about that, but
0: yeah. In-kind support for Desi Women Diaspora is provided by Sanjara Inc. Digital solutions that serve the greater good. So we obviously both work in international development. We met each other when
1: we were both working at the UN World Food Programme. Do you feel like if your childhood had been in a different order, like the same countries, but in a different order, do you feel like you would have ended up in the same place you did now?
2: I feel like I would have if I had the same amount of time that I spent in Bangladesh, because thinking about it, I think what really drove me to go into international development was all the time I spent back home. You know, And uh, every time I would be there, whether to visit or whenever I've lived there, I felt that you know, it was unfair that I'd had this sort of privileged life where I had a good education. I was able to see all these places, experience all these things as a kid. But every time I'd go back to my home country, there's so much poverty. And I felt that not enough people were doing what needed to be done to fight that.
1: Hmm, That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I felt like in some ways, I had a similar experience in that all of the places yeah. I was able to go and see it was really the trips back to India. I realized how random it was that I was born into relative wealth, whereas my cousins, who were from the same family, you know two generations up, somehow were dealing with so many things that I would never ever experience
2: right, right, No, I totally understand what you mean because it was a part of that for me too, you know, where um, I felt like, yeah, like relatively my family was doing well, but every time I'd go back home, you know, I'd see you know, just in my extended family, the effects of unemployment, mm-hmm. poverty all around that. And that made me very sad and wanted to do something to change that.
1: Very cool. So can you tell me a bit about the stuff you're doing now? I know you've you've kind of taken a break from the international development work and gone into something else.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I guess a few years ago, I quit my full time job. At the time, I was working at a healthcare startup called Grameen PrimaCare. And I'd been working for Grameen on and off for about six years. I'd done some work with the UN. And at that point, I just wanted to kind of step back, take a little bit of a break, and do something more, I guess, creatively fulfilling. That led me to what I currently spend a lot of my time on, which is running a food blog. You know, I just was spending a lot of time cooking and I started posting a lot of photos online at the time and got some really good feedback from yeah, people.
1: Yeah, your, f- your photos are beautiful. I was like, thank I you. wish I were eating that right now.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. They didn't always look <laughs> very good to start with, but I guess, you know, people were interested to learn what is that? What are you, what are you making? <laughs> yeah, that's oh, yeah. that's
1: how a lot of um, non-South Asians <laughs> phrase What is that? <laughs> Oh, it's delicious.
2: Oh, what is that brown stuff? It looks good. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, as a result of that, people were really curious about the food. And I started a supper club a couple of years ago, which focuses on Bangladeshi and Sri Lankan cuisine. And both of these have really just been a creative outlet for me, which lets me focus uh, my hobbies and passions a little bit more concretely. And I, I, I love cooking. I enjoy photography, writing. So all of these I can focus on through the blog. And then the Supper Club has been a really cool way for me to share a bit more about my culture with others while also kind of giving me the opportunity to connect with new people, which is something I've always loved doing. So that's great. Then I, earlier this year, I also started a company with a friend called Curated, which um, is the other part of what I do right now. So, Curated, we're a small, you know, two person company that my friend and I run, and we do small private events that are focused on promoting the South Asian arts, culture, and entrepreneurship. And um, we've done a few events so far, and we'll be scaling up a little bit more, doing more what we can on our two-person team. But uh, that's also a really more of a creative outlet for both myself and my friends on me, who is actually a doctor by background. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, both of us love the arts and wanted to connect with other South Asians.
1: Yeah, that's great. So it's kind of a cool juxtaposition in that you've got one company that's focusing on South Asia as a region and then another one that's introducing people to Bangladeshi and Sri Lankan culture. uh, Yeah, because I feel like you know, New York and LA, some of the bigger cities in the States have had so many Indians and Pakistanis over the past couple of decades that the food is sort of well known and the culture is a bit known, or at least different regions of Indian culture are known. But a lot of places don't necessarily understand that South Asia is part of the continent with multiple countries. Right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so can you tell me a bit about your experience, like trying to introduce people to two countries in South Asia that they didn't necessarily knew existed or definitely didn't know anything about?
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's part of the reason why I wanted to focus on uh, promoting Bangladeshi and Sri Lankan cuisine, because not that that's all I eat at home, obviously. Um, I love food from all over, but and I wanted to talk about the cultures that I grew up with, that my husband grew up with, and the food that we grew up with, because it is um, a little bit different from Indian and Pakistani, which more people are familiar with. And yeah, I mean, it's, It's been interesting. I guess a lot of people just put it in the same bucket still. Um, You know, when I host my supper clubs, people, like, they'll sign up and they'll still come and be like, oh, so how is this different, you know, before they've had the food from Indian food? And I try to explain, yeah, you know, like, a lot of the spices we use are similar, but the end results can be different. They see that after they've tasted some of the food, they're like, oh, this this is very different, especially a Sri Lankan uh, cuisine, which really is... Mm -hmm more unique in a way. You know, Bangladeshi food has a lot of roots in Indian cuisine as well. You know, um, a lot a lot of things come from local influences. A lot of things have, you know, the Bengali identity all over, which can be similar to Bengali food in West Bengal. But Sri Lankan food people, they're really more surprised by a lot of times.
0: After the interview, Nord did some fact finding for us. And found out that Bangladeshi food might actually be more common than many of us realize. An estimated seventy percent of Indian restaurants in New York and ninety percent of Indian restaurants in the UK are actually owned by Bangladeshi immigrants.
1: So, how did food play into your childhood? Did you realize from a young age that you enjoyed all of the different cultures that you'd been exposed to? Yeah, film?
2: yeah, absolutely. I think um, so, I mean it's not not something I you know ever saw myself working in and anything related to food. And to be honest, I actually didn't cook at all growing up. It was one of those things <laughs> which my mom really wanted me to learn. And of course, so then I decided that I will never learn how to cook because that would make her happy. And, you know, <laughs> to go against the whole South Asian, you know, stereotypes, I guess. It always kind of irritated me that there was an expectation I would learn to cook and, you know, none placed, none of that placed on my brother.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, no, totally.
2: So it was kind of an intentional thing for me to not actively be involved in the kitchen, but I always enjoyed food and um, it played a huge role in the experiences I had in every place I lived in. Because, you know, a lot of times, even if I didn't really find myself happy in my surroundings because of, you know... Whatever it was, constantly missing old friends, old schools, and old life. You know, I think I always found comfort in discovering the new food in a place, uh, wherever it what it is that I was. And food helped me connect with others. So you know, definitely, I think that played a huge role in my life throughout. Even though I did not cook until yeah. <laughs> I was in graduate school.
1: Well, I guess it's great that being in a diplomatic family, you were probably posted to big cities. So you always had many options of going out and getting something, even if you couldn't cook yourself.
2: Yeah, yeah. As a kid, you know, like we ate at home a lot, but my parents were also very adventurous eaters. And I appreciate that a lot, I think. So that is probably where... I was most exposed to the other host cultures through food because we would always Mm -hmm. go out and um, eat at local restaurants, which I guess um, not a lot of families also do. Like I talked to my husband and I don't think his family did a lot of that. They mostly stuck to cuisine that they ate at home but Mm -hmm. you know my parents were very adventurous like we'd find all these hole-in-the-wall places in South Korea when we lived there which and the food was very foreign to them but they were always curious about learning about it same in Abu Dhabi you know I mean it was easier over there because there was a big variety of South Asian cuisines and you know the language was easy to navigate everything was easier but you know, i think about it a place like south korea and that was only their second posting for them to be how adventurous they were so that's pretty cool and i appreciate that
1: yeah definitely that's not i don't think that's common at all especially among south asians where they can find somebody that they identify with in their culture and just stick right
2: right you know i think about it now like some of the places we went to it wasn't just you know the usual barbecue places like they'd find all these random really obscure places to go get <laughs> like that all these food items that I don't even remember the names of, but I think my parents do. To be honest, um, a lot of that time, I was fairly younger and, you know, I mean, I loved food, but I wasn't always the most curious.
1: Eater. Yeah, you're like, I'll just take a burger. I'm I was good.
2: just like, yeah, you know, let's go to McDonald's after.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned him a couple of times, like obviously you and your husband know each other from way back. Can you tell me a bit about that?
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's a a kind of a funny story. We actually know each other from when we lived in South Korea, and so did his family. So we've known each other since elementary school. We went to the same school. His sister was my classmate at the school we went to in South Korea, and then our parents were also friends uh, through the diplomatic network. Like I said, his dad was a diplomat with the Sri Lankan government. So we knew each other, but I didn't really know him. You know, my friend's older brother. It's interesting that we reconnected after, and I think one of the things that we really connected over was that, yeah, we didn't really have a lot of friends, you know, that we grew up with, so it it was nice to connect with someone who had shared experiences that you could also relate to, and, you know, we had a lot of shared memories and friends that we both knew and same teacher, so all of that really helped, I guess, bring us closer together when we first uh, reconnected in New York.
1: And where did he end up going after Korea?
2: Um, after Korea, I think they went back to Sri Lanka for a bit, and then they've lived after that in Oman, in Qatar, and in Lebanon. I believe.
1: Wow. Okay. So do you guys talk about like the overlapping experiences and then kind of how your lives parted ways?
2: Yeah, yeah, we do talk about that. And I mean, we also just talk about how, you know, similar and different our experiences were overall. So his family, you know, mostly had postings in the Middle East that also previously lived in Kuwait way back. Um, And I think Korea was the only place they lived in, which wasn't a Muslim country. So that was very different for them. And I think talking about it sometimes, and I feel like His family didn't enjoy Korea as much as my family did. Like, my parents loved it there, even though we moved there, and we kind of expected not to. (laughs) It's
1: probably for the food, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the food. And honestly, it was just, like, culturally very interesting for Mm -hmm. us. We have a lot of good memories from there as a family. And with his family, and I think, like, him and his siblings, they enjoyed school and life there. But I think for his parents, it was a hard uh, posting because of the food, actually you know, it's hard for them to find halal food and right. food that they're familiar with. So right. was tough. Uh, but everything else, you know, for them in the Middle East, I think was quite similar. And we sometimes talk about um, that, you know, I think they had a, a proclivity to take those type of missions where it'd be a little bit similar for them.
1: Um, so how do you think that your family's Bangladeshi background and your husband's Sri Lankan background kind of influenced the places that you went to and the postings that Your parents took and the experiences that you guys had overall?
2: I don't know if our backgrounds influence what posting we took because, I mean, at least for us in, in, you know, for my parents in the Bangladesh Foreign Service, I don't think you're given a choice. It's really wherever you get posted to. I think in the Sri Lankan government, if I'm not wrong, I think you do have a little bit of a say in choosing where you would want to be posted, because I know that it was partly intentional that his parents ended up in the Middle East. Because I think that was what they preferred. And also because, you know, my husband's family is Muslim and they're a small minority in Sri Lanka. So obviously it also makes sense for the government to post a Muslim diplomat with the Sri Lanka mission in a Muslim
1: country. Right.
2: And it's really more arbitrary in the Bangladesh missions.
1: So when you guys talk about your experiences are there any places where you can kind of tell yourself, wow, my experience was definitely different because I'm a woman, and he's a man?
2: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I sometimes listen to his stories about him seeing that in his family, like where he often comments on yeah, you know, I feel like. This was possible for me because I was the oldest and, um, you know, male in the family, like his sister didn't have a lot of the same opportunities for me. I guess I'm the oldest of my siblings. So, you know, there's always a little bit more you can get away with sometimes just because you're the first one in the family that your parents are um, kind of.
1: Unaware. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) in ways but at the same time yeah there are definitely a lot of restrictions that i had growing up which i don't think my younger brothers had or have to this date and just those are always
1: irritating for me yeah what Uh, are some of the examples
2: i mean well one of them is yeah you know like the cooking bit i i don't remember i remember having a lot of fights with my mom growing up honestly because i refused to help around the house <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that i didn't want to help but it was because i'm like oh why aren't you asking him <laughs> you know <laughs> or i mean she's like oh yeah i'm asking him too but it was kind of like there was an expectation that i would learn you know my way around the kitchen learn how to like take care of things in the house that sort of things and every now and then there'd be comments that just really Irritated me, and I was like, "Nope, I'm not getting involved in this." (laughs) That was one, and then I had a lot of curfews growing up. wasn't really allowed to have sleepovers, go over to friends' places often if it was going to be past eight p.m. I don't think my brother had any of those restrictions, and there was always a lot more expectation that I would carry myself, you know, a certain way in front of others, which wasn't really there. For my brother like he could get away with not saying hello to people when they came over for dinner god forbid i did that that sort of
1: thing so i want to talk a bit about our favorite cities at least it's my favorite city in the yeah. world new york yeah so what, is, what has it been like being in new york i mean i guess new york is really home second home
2: yeah it's funny because i really can't say what my primary home is now like new york definitely feels like home. It's it's very funny because every time I go back to Bangladesh I I feel like, oh, I came home, but then after a few weeks I'm like, oh I miss home. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And then when I come back to New York, I really just I'm like, oh I'm home. But it it, yeah, it's sometimes hard for me to really call either New York or Bangladesh as as home, but both of them are. But in many ways New York is more home than Bangladesh is. Because I've lived here now for a really long time. When I first moved here, I remember like every move there were challenges and things I didn't like. But moving to New York, I don't think I ever went through that phase of like, oh, I don't really want to be here. Like, I always loved New York from the very beginning, just because mm-hmm. of how multicultural it is, how easy it is to get around. I mean, part of the reason I hated living in LA was because it was so hard for me to get around as someone who doesn't drive and the mm-hmm. public transit system being so bad there. Yeah. But New York was easy for me to explore from the get-go. And- mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, I love it here. And it's still hard for me to fathom that I might, you know, live somewhere forever. <laughs> but if anywhere, you know, I think that would have to be New York.
1: Yeah, same here. One of the things I loved about coming to New York was that I didn't have to waste my time explaining who I was. Like People just accepted right. me, you know?
2: Right, right. I-, I totally understand that because I felt like that was true for a lot of my experiences when I you know, was surrounded in a diplomatic community, like everyone is different and coming from different places. But because of that, you never had to really explain your differences. And I feel that living in New York feels like that. It's,
1: mm-hmm. like it's a, just part of the normal life. Yeah, it's not exactly. not even a diplomatic existence.
2: Right, exactly. It's a very wide international community. And mm-hmm. I, I love how diverse it is here.
1: So I guess you talked a bit about like, if you had to be in one place the rest of your life, it would be New York. So one of the, my favorite questions to ask people, just to make it difficult for them, <laughs> if you had to choose between, you could either live in New York for the rest of your life, but never live anywhere else, or you could live anywhere else, as many places as you want for the rest of your life, but never be able to live in New York again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at this point, I would have to go with New York. But yeah. you know, I mean, I, I've I'm also saying that having lived in a lot of places already, mm-hmm. if I hadn't done that, maybe I would have not picked that answer. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, that's exactly uh, how I feel. But you know,
2: that said, like, I, yeah, my husband and I often talk about moving, and um, well, it's really me because I sometimes I'm like, oh no, this is, are we really done? Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> is this it?
2: Yeah. yeah <laughs> One um,
1: bedroom apartment in a story, ever good. <laughs> <yeah, like>,
2: forever. <laughs> but, um, Like, I'd love to still live somewhere else um, and then come back to New York. I always dream about Sri Lanka. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, the Sri Lankan in my home is not as keen.
1: (laughs) Right. If you guys ever had kids, would you want to kind of expose them to the same multicultural lifestyle that you guys had? Or would you rather them have a more consistent place growing up?
2: we've talked about it. I don't think we would want them to have the similar life to what we had growing up. Um, But we definitely would want them to be exposed to as many cultures as possible. And that's definitely possible in New York. And also Mm -hmm. given that, you know, if we have kids, they would be both Sri Lankan and Bangladeshi. And so by default, they'd be exposed to two very different cultures at home, as well as if we live in the US. But yeah, I think we definitely would want them to have that sort of exposure, but without all of the moving that we went through.
1: Okay, great, those are all of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up?
2: No, no, thank you, this was really fun.
1: Yeah, it was wonderful hearing your story. Thanks so much for your time. And I'll hopefully see you soon, hopefully while eating something delicious. Bye, Noor.
0: This episode of Thaisi Women Diaspora was written, produced and recorded by Mala Kumar with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our intro and outro music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash josephmcdade. That's patreon.com slash josephmcdade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Noor Shams.